everybody, and welcome to another episode of RetroTube, the show where two best friends watch weird and wonderful shows from the 60s to the 80s, and then talk about them at great length, occasionally or even coherent about it. This week it's my turn again, and I've chosen ITC's 1967 Danger Man replacement service, it's Man in a Suitcase! <laughs> one of Ron Grainer's more recognisable theme tunes and no Patrick McGowan, Man in a Suitcase follows the adventures of disgraced CIA man McGill as he tries to earn a living as a private detective who works strictly in the greyest areas of the law. The show stars method actor and real-life Texan Richard Bradford as McGill, a taciturn badass with a heart of gold. Originally made as a replacement show for the cancellation of Danger Man and a more straight spy alternative to The Prisoner, Man in a Suitcase now has a smaller cult following than The Prisoner, but boasts not only more episodes, but stories arguably more steeped in realism in the John le Carre ilk. Man in a Suitcase is one of my favourite shows, and I've been looking forward to inflicting this onto you for ages, Adam. <laughs> but had you heard of or seen the show before, and if not, did you have any preconceived ideas of what it might be like? Most importantly, did you enjoy the episodes we saw? It'll cost you 20000 Oh, crikey. I'm not telling you unless you Whether pay Whether you liked it, it or not. Yeah. I'm, I'm revealing nothing oh. unless I get the money in my bank account. Yeah, I don't blame you. <laughs> <laughs> I knew um, absolutely nothing about this beyond the theme tune. And I'm sure a lot of people will recognise the theme tune as, as having been co-opted by Chris Evans and his gang for uh, TFI Friday in the 90s. So the theme tune automatically made me want to react to everything, anything anyone said with... <laughs> I just look. I, I, the, the image that I now have. <laughs> wow. But other than other than the theme tune, um, no, nothing at all. I knew you were a fan of it, and the title sounded vaguely distantly familiar. But it's not one of the. It's not one of the really well known ones. And I didn't recognise the characters. I didn't really. I didn't. I deliberately didn't look up anything about it. So I wanted to go in completely cold, not know who were the main characters, what the situation was, and I just took it as it came. Fair and uh, yes, I did enjoy it. It was a lot of fun. It was a different sort of fun of than we've been having with ITC recently. Yes, it is a bit different to uh, any of the other ITC shows. Yes, it wasn't what I was expecting from 1967. I think it's probably as close to gritty as a 1967 spy show can be. I think so. It's very brown. It doesn't swing at all. There's no punching and bongos. No punching. There's, there's punching, but no bongos. No bongos, yeah. More shooting than punching. A lot more shooting. We watched two episodes. They're 50 minutes long each. We did. And, yeah, they both had a, a nice absorbing premise which unlike the prisoner made sense mm. isn't isn't it such a refreshing change <laughs> it's qu- yeah the premise seems quite similar i mean it took me a long time to actually work out what the premise was mm. because i deliberately didn't research it at all so there's just some random people doing some random things and it took me a long time to even work out that he was a disgraced cia operative and that he was a mercenary who does things for money. Yes. But the idea of him having once been a member of a top secret organisation and is now seems to be on the run somehow does make it quite a mirror image of the prisoner, doesn't it, really? Yeah, but with actual plots. Actual plots and actual spying. 
a more scrutable lead character. A little bit. I think. <laughs> Slightly. And I think if you'd seen more than two episodes, I mean, I I warmed to him very, very quickly. Uh, <laughs> you like a grumpier gentleman, don't you? That's a whole different story. Uh, but yeah, no, it it... it does take a, a little time to sort of understand what the character's like, as opposed to number six, who is angry at everybody and mistrustful of everybody and is very much, I am a rock, I am an island, mm. and I have always been like this and I'm very happy. I'm very happy being a very grumpy man. McGill is more like, I am a rock, I am an island, and I'm not very happy about it, but this is the situation I'm in and I don't know what to do about it. But somebody please love me, for God's sake. <laughs> yeah, I think for all his inscrutability, number six, you can get a read on him fairly quickly. Mm. I actually don't think there's many hidden depths to him personality-wise. Obviously, he has a lot of secrets, but personality-wise, yeah. I don't think he has many hidden depths, whereas was our man. What's his name? Mac. McGill. McGill. He calls himself Lil, but everyone knows him as Nancy. That I just had that in my head every time anyone shouted out McGill, and I was thinking, yeah, they should just call him Nancy. <laughs> I mean, I mean, they could, but they probably wouldn't do it more than once. <laughs> no. But yes, he's a lot more of a layered personality. I think there's yes, more nuance is. to him. He he's not just this little tightly wound bundle of fury. He does have a, a kind of a preference for helping people who he knows are, are in trouble. And he has a, a zero tolerance policy on idiots. Right. Um, but the first episode we saw, actually, I don't know which which order you saw them in, but in my head, because this is like the way they were shown, it's day of execution and then somebody loses, somebody wins. Yes, that's the, that's the order I watched them in. Oh, well. So please could you tell us the plot of Day of Execution? The plot of Day of Execution is that he is uh, taking his drunken friend, who we shall find out more about later. He and his frustrated girlfriend are taking a drunken friend home from a party. When he gets called Mariocchi, someone shouts Mariocchi to him out of a door and tells him he's going to, out of a, a passing car, and tells him he's going to die very soon. He's, yes. he's, what are you talking about? I'm not Mariaki. He doesn't talk like that he, at all. He doesn't talk like that at all. He's from Texas, not New York. He denies all knowledge of being Mariaki because that's not his name. His name's McGill. <laughs> McGill, played by Joe Pesci. <laughs> Sorry. <I'm... laughs> it goes from there that it, it's a similar premise or a similar starting idea to North by Northwest, this, this supposed case of mistaken identity that they're determined to kill this person called Mariaki who they strongly believe McGill to be and he's like I'm not Mariaki you've got the wrong person I'm McGill and like no we're going to kill you you're the one we're going to kill Mariaki <laughs> you're going to die Mariaki the end <laughs> the thing that cracked me up was it was less the fact that somebody said we're going to kill you and more the fact they got his name wrong if you're going to kill me, at least get my name right about it, for heaven's sake. So we should mention uh, that this is another Dennis Spooner creation. It is. So which ones were Dennis Spooner's before? I've slightly lost track of Dennis Spooner's output. Because he's, he's done a lot. He's like another Terry Nation. Randall Hopkirk, The Champions, all all the ones like that. In fact, after coming up with that, because he didn't have very much to do with the actual production and writing of the show, 
McGill was ori- was originally written as far more inscrutable, like oh, really? the six to the power of n. Wow. Fortunately, they uh, the, the the writers when they got hold of, of the idea managed to turn him into a human. Co-created by Richard Harris. Yes. The writer Richard Harris, rather than the Irish actor Richard. Not Harris. the actor. Yeah. I looked at his credits, and I actually know him best. He did in the late eighties a cricketing comedy drama called Outside Edge, which I watched with my family and rather enjoyed at the time. But it's a very different sort of thing, a very kind of light, breezy, middle-class English light drama about cricket. So we've got, yeah, we've got Ron Grain and we've got Dennis Spooner. So that's a good, solid ITC. Yeah, ITC combo there. Hey, who's in this episode? Baby Donald Sutherland. Baby Donald Sutherland. Looking very young. As McGill's very drunk friend, Willard. Willard is staying with McGill in a flat that he's currently renting. Um, McGill is shown in through the series because he doesn't have a permanent place of residence due to his line of work. But the flat that he lives in in this episode, I think is my favourite, mainly because of the wooden staircase that goes from the bathroom and bedroom down into the kitchen and living room. I just think it looks awesome. It is just like the most 60s flat I've ever seen. Outside of Emma Peel, it's the most 60s flat ever. Right, I've got quickly one more production note on this before we launch fully into it. The director is Charles Crichton, who's very distinguished. He did the Lavender Hill Mob. He did the Titfield Thunderbolt. He did one of the segments of Dead of Night, the classic horror anthology from the 40s. He did the worst one. He did the comedy golfing one. But probably he's most famous for now being the director and co-writer of A Fish Called Wanda. That's right, Otto. I used to box for Oxford. Willard is staying with McGill and he basically spends all of his time being drunk. So poor McGill has got two terrible things on his hands. He has a very drunk friend and a very clingy girlfriend. And on top of all of this, somebody's threatening to kill him and they don't even know what his name is. Is is she regular? Like, is she his regular girlfriend? Because she's not in the second episode. She's not? No. Oh, okay. He doesn't have a regular girlfriend. He doesn't have a regular place to live. The only time he's shown to actually genuinely be in love with someone is in a two-part episode called Variation on a Million Books. And he's in love with a Japanese model who is also very madly in love with him. It's quite a tragic story in the end, really. But um, I mean, she doesn't die or anything, but it's just a really sad story. He does occasionally have girlfriends or there are ladies that he meets during the course of a show that he'll have a smooch with but no there's not a there's not a regular significant other which is which is why Moira the girlfriend seems so clingy from sort of the point of view of a person who's seen more episodes yes I got the impression that she was a regular no because even though he says to her and he reminds her that he's already said that he's in no position to offer a permanent relationship he doesn't want a long-term relationship he just wants to keep things casual. She calls him and is like, well, why don't you tell me you love me? And he's just, just like, oh, good night. And so she really annoys me for, for that. For that <laughs> right. like, just don't, don't, don't go out with him. If you, want, if you want a boyfriend and he's saying to you, I can't be that, then go out with somebody else. So, yes, I came to this not knowing anything about it and not really knowing anything about the hero. Uh, he, he wasn't a familiar actor to me. I looked him up. I think I, I would have seen him or he would be most familiar to me as the police chief in The Untouchables. He's much older and playing a very different sort of part. It's a shame he wasn't in more stuff, because as leading men in these things from the 60s go, his acting was of a much higher calibre than any of the others. I mean, no offence to anyone, but 
by Patrick McNee's own admission, there wasn't really a great deal of acting involved in John Steed. <laughs> There's certainly not a lot, not a great deal of acting. Apologies to Mike Pratt in being Jeff Randall. But here we have some actual gritty acting. There was actual real acting going on, and he uh, was very, very dedicated to trying to make to make it real. Uh, so, for example, most shows of of that ilk, when the lead guy is in a fight and gets knocked out. You just see him in the next scene. Maybe he's got a bit of a bruise or something. Um, but he's making quips and he's fine. But in Man in a Suitcase, McGill will take time to recover from a beating or he will. you'll, you'll see him recovering in hospital. Th- there are things like that. And even even to the extent that he, he studied makeup so that he could get the brute get the the types of bruising right that wow that's were, dedication that were on his that were on his face so yeah he he really really took it seriously he tried to do everything that he could to make it seem real and i think it shows because this is this is very different from the other kind of 60s shows this is much more john le carre than any of the it feels very authentic spy yeah it's kind of the closest thing that 60s spy shows can possibly get to being gritty it's a level of grit that doesn't really start creeping in until the 70s in any other procedural type show no there's no cravats and colorful shirts and powder blue sports jackets or any of that kind of thing no not not this time it's still 60s it's still glossy yeah there's there's an element of glamour to it particularly like the the glamorous ladies and their enormous false eyelashes and that kind of thing yeah there's still that there and there are some episodes where the plots are quite wacky uh (laughs) but aside from that it's the fantastical element of of the spy world but you can you can feel a realism in it Mm. and that makes it really unique out of the entire itc spectrum and also makes it more timeless than 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 the usual than the usual fare it does yeah and this this one feels dangerous a lot of the other yes. ones you never really get the sense that the characters are in any danger but it does feel like tinker taylor soldier spy or something like that where they're behind yeah. enemy lines and are in actual peril and it can get genuinely tense it does it really does i sometimes do need to be in a in a particular mindset to watch it i can't just <laughs> let let the the episodes wash over me like i can with with other shows because i know i'm going to get far too involved <laughs> He has scenes with Donald Sutherland and they have they have a very good chemistry and you can tell that Donald Sutherland at this early age is a very magnetic screen presence as well. Sorry, I got plastered. It just sort of happens. It's happened a lot? Yeah. Why do you think that is? I'm a coward. Don't you remember? Drinking Mickey Brave? Just more tolerant. I'll tell you. My big, strong daddy understood me and determined to make a man of me. But I fooled him. All he ever did was make me rich. Because poor old daddy up and died. Oh, well, I enjoy his money. Help me find you. You know, the only brave thing I ever did in my whole life had to do with you. What was that? Football practice at college. You don't remember? You were all alone in a keeper play. I was defensive back. You were heading straight for me. A little voice inside me said, Willard, let him go. He's going to run right over you. Lordy Zaffy, I don't know why I tucked and headed straight for you, hit you straight on, brought you down. That was my finest hour. Because 
Richard Bradford was such a method actor and he was so dedicated to the role. He did say on um, the DVD extra interview that, that he did, his biggest regret out of the show is not spending more time with Donald Sutherland and not becoming friends with him. Right. Because he really liked him and he seemed like such a lovely guy. Donald Sutherland appeared in two episodes. Playing the same character or playing different characters? No, playing different characters. But in, in the Mariocchi episode, we know that and total spoiler alert for the ending, Donald Sutherland's character, Willard, is a total weasel (laughs) and betrays him. So he is, even though they have like a history of being friends from school, there is an enmity between them. And and there does always seem to be some kind of bitterness from Willard towards McGill. Yeah, he's an edgy character. I couldn't tell from this whether he was a Canadian, because he he clearly has a Canadian accent in much of it. and, And sometimes he seems to be putting on doing an american accent so i couldn't quite tell whether he was just doing an unsuccessful american accent but was mostly canadian or i think he was probably doing an unsuccessful american accent <laughs> and then heard himself speaking <laughs> i was like you know what i'm just gonna i'm just gonna quit while i'm ahead here. There's, a, there's a lot of a boat yeah there's quite there's quite a bit of that and but in in the other episode that donald sutherland appears in he's an all he's an all-out evil baddie and a total enemy to to mcgill not just a spineless toad Uh, (laughs) and so because of that richard bradford took the conscious step to not spend a lot of time with him not really interact very much with him so that the character's interactions would be more believable and more natural but that was like his biggest regret that he didn't make more of an effort to to befriend Donald Sutherland and and I think that's that's quite nice because Richard Bradford doesn't come across as as the type of person who would hand out compliments willy-nilly. This uh, particular episode, Day of Execution, it's quite a surreal one in a way. It reminded me of... Um, did you ever see a Monty Python episode, the uh, Michael Ellis episode, which is in, it's in series four? I may have seen it, but I don't remember that I've seen it. Right. I'm a bit of a weirdo and I, I like to watch things chronologically, so... By the time I get to the end of series three, I am Monty python out, <laughs> which is a shame because I'm terrified of John Cleese. So on paper, series four would be my favourite. Many years ago for my birthday, I got the Monty Python script book. And one of the episodes that really made an impression on me, reading it on paper, and actually it does, it's not quite as effective on screen, but the script version... I found really strange and dreamlike and almost like a Philip K. Dick thing was the Michael Ellis episode. And it essentially involves a character who I've, off the top of my head, I think is played by Eric Idle. And he goes throughout his day being mistaken for this person, Michael Ellis. So he goes into the shop and they go, oh, Michael Ellis, it's you. And everywhere he goes, oh, it's, hey, you're Michael Ellis, aren't you? No, I'm not. Thanks very much indeed. Not at all. Thank you, Mr. Ellis. What did you say? I said thank you, Mr. Ellis. him. Why did you say I was Mr. Ellis? Hmm? No, no, he didn't say that. Yes, he did. I heard him say, thank you, Mr. Ellis. Uh, no, no, no. He said, I'm jealous. But it's not only that, that, that like, he'll go into a place and he'll hear a tannoy. Will Mr. Michael Ellis please go straight to the manager's office? I'll repeat that. Will Mr. Nigel Bellish please go straight to the manager's office? Or he will arrive home and his mum, as Terry Jones will say to him. By the way, Michael's been on the phone all day for you. Michael? Then he'll switch on the TV and... Read the latest news of the extraordinary Michael Ellis saga. 
And so he just becomes this sort of ubiquitous name that tips over from just being a bit strange into outright surreal. And that's what we've got here with the name Mariocchi. So it's not just him being mistaken for Mr. Mariocchi. It's just everywhere he's go, people will shout Mariocchi at him and things like that. I think one of the particularly sort of effectively evocatively surreal parts is when he believes he's being chased by a car and there's lots of lovely rear projection and you see him driving through London as a car trailing him and then he pulls up at traffic lights because that's what you do when you're being chased by a car and the car pulls up next to him but it's actually a glamorous woman so they exchange smiles and things like that and just before they pull off again she shouts Mariachi! then speeds away so even like the girl in the car opposite is evolved in this whole thing so it becomes this really strange paranoid fever dream almost and then he 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 chases her and she abandons her car and then when he finds her car she has the identical number plate to him which is very odd that is very odd and i think that's never really explained unfortunately it's one of those things where the the setup is possibly a bit more effective than the payoff a little note on the car chase scene for people who are really really geeky about production values and stuff man in a suitcase was the first spy show the, well the first tv series to do actual nighttime filming oh really as, okay. as to, wow to using day for night at the time uh the way that the the, the the car chase scene because the car chase scene was actually properly filmed it wasn't all just you know with a, a a moving film sort of behind a fake car it was an actual proper car chase scene it was the first time anything like that had been done on television wow. it was quite revolutionary the way the way it had been done but yeah man in the suitcase was was, was the first show that did actual nighttime recording instead of just the the day for night blue screen okay so i do really like the creeping paranoia and anything like this that has that building mystery that tips life over into not seeming quite real i really like yes i thought you would like this episode life becomes a puzzle to be solved you don't know who you can trust there's a i i presume this is deliberate there appears to be this great technique that they use in editing that when he uh, interacts with a minor character like the caretaker at his apartment uh, or the dry clean delivery man the camera lingers on them just a little bit longer than it needs to and they don't necessarily look shifty but they look thoughtful yes yes i got that as well and his girlfriend as well at one point just sort of goes into the next room and you're not quite sure why she's gone into the next room and then it cuts away from her, but it's just like a two or three seconds longer than it needs to that it shows these characters. And that's really effective. So you, you're always watching the background. It is. And strangely, the only one that doesn't, like, they don't do that trick with is with Willard. Uh, we have another couple of good actors in here. We have a very brief cameo from Sally Geeson or Sally Geeson. I'm never quite sure how to pronounce her name. She turns up in a tiny cameo as a dry cleaner, uh, but in a bigger role as one of the villains, T.P. McKenna. T.P. McKenna, he's been in a bunch of stuff, very memorably in Straw Dogs, uh, Doctor Who and Blake 7 as well, of course. I would know that. Obviously, yes, that's that's where you know him from. <laughs> yes. There's the bit with the ice cream van. There's a repeated shot of children running from an ice, for an ice cream van, and the second time you see it happen, the word mariocchi is painted on the roof of the ice cream van so it really does like they've really gone to some they've gone to some to trouble some proper 
Yeah. I mean, they're not just messing about here. <laughs> no. I thought probably the most sinister moment was when a car goes past and they throw a wreath at him with Mariocchi Midnight on it. Like, that's just, wow, that's cold. I think a lot of the 60s, a lot of these other 60s shows, even for the time it's an idealised version of the 60s, and maybe the 60s as a decade is unique in knowingly idealising itself, whereas other decades you sort of idealise it in retrospect. The 60s was good at presenting this swinging London that didn't really exist. And this does feel closer to what the reality of the 60s was actually probably like, albeit with more spies. I mean, it's still spying, which is the obligatory 60s TV thing, but it's a lot browner and a lot murkier and um, a lot more subdued. Our hero, McGill, to me, he seems like an overgrown 50s teen. He's He's got like the 1950s quiff, but he's grey and he has that sort of in, insolent American teen mumble. That's the wrong guy to get attached to, Mark. Why? I've told you why. Well, I'm not impressed. I wasn't trying to impress you. Let's just take it a day at a time. Okay. Today was a nice day. Tonight was a, a great party. Especially for Willard. What can you do about him? Well, I'll just bed him down in my place. He won't know the difference. So it's quite a modern acting yeah. style that he he speaks in a very low mumble a lot of the time, and it's quite... Uh... He does. He, he just glowers a lot and growls sometimes. and But certainly, certainly I, I get the uh, overgrown... American teen thing. He should be wearing like a white t-shirt with the sleeves rolled up. And one of those matchboxes under the, the like rolled into the shoulder. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's not somebody you can picture sitting down with a nice bowl of ice cream, is he? No, not really. And I think that's quite a shame because I think un- underneath all of the growly, taciturn exterior, he's probably quite quite soft and squishy and wouldn't mind a nice bowl of ice cream now and again. Sat in front of the telly in a onesie with a Bucket of Hagendoss and a spoon. He's pink bunny rabbit onesie. <laughs> Speaking of pink bunny rabbit onesies, the ending is quite brutal. It builds up to this big kind of flaming crescendo that involves a Molotov cocktail yes. and uh, his the suit that has been left there in a threatening way has been set on fire. And there's a machine gun. There's a big explosion, and all the bad guys are knocked to the floor in this explosion. And one of them catches fire. Yes, they do. Which is quite severe for a sixty show. Although um, McGill very politely stops and takes the time to put the bad guy out, which is nice of him. I know that's he's not all mean and nasty. He's got a bit of a moral. He's got a bit of a moral, a moral compass. compass, not yeah. a big one. Yes. Just, just, just there, there is one. Yeah, it's, his moral compass is like those little plastic ones you get in crackers at Christmas. Yes. Mm-hmm. He's got, he's got a, a small plastic novelty moral compass. And then it ends in a really strange place. It kind of ends mid-action. So the the credits roll as Moira and Willard are fleeing the building and the bad guys who've been knocked over by the explosion are just coming round and McGill is standing over them. And that's where it ends. Yes. The episode ends with the camera on Moira, who is crying as she's running away. Because the little subplot all through the episode, which drove me insane, was her <laughs> being clingy and trying to get him to settle down when he couldn't settle down, didn't want to settle down. Even when there was a scene where he called her and asked to meet her so specifically so he could break up with her. She wouldn't even take it then. But when she found out about Mariocchi and that he wasn't even a target. He was just somebody who started shooting at McGill and McGill shot him back and killed him. And that is why 
that's why this big revenge thing has been playing out. When she finds this out, she's disgusted and she's like, oh, life's come pretty cheap in your line of work. And he's, McGill's just like, well, I've, I've never pretended to be anything other than this, so I don't know don't know why you're getting angry with me now. But when she sees the the, the whole climax of, of the episode actually happening and all of the fire and the fella and the, the whole building's like got a big hole in it and Willard's running off and McGill's shouting after him, asking for a cheque. He'll never get his deposit back. And then Moira's running away and crying because it's as though she's finally realised that no, McGill isn't the guy that she thinks he could be. He's just exactly who he's always said that he was a guy that is not good for her. You can see the heartbreak actually happening and that's how it ends. And I think that's actually quite refreshing because in a lot of these things, and particularly in like Hollywood films, a macho man with a gun who's killing people is usually portrayed as a bit of a turn-on. Yeah. So it's nice to actually have a female character who's, who is horrified by the idea of her love interest as being someone who's a killer and is handy with a gun. So that's, yeah, it's quite a nice inversion on the usual trope. Yes, I think so too. So that was Day of Execution and Donald Sutherland is all very well and good and I'm glad that you that you enjoyed that episode. But the one that I really, really wanted you to see was Somebody Loses, Somebody Wins because of the guest star, or as I like to call it now, the Servalan episode. Yes, we have a, a now not so mystery, very special guest star in this one, though she wasn't a very special guest star at the time. She would have just been uh, an actress, but very special to me. Very special to you. This one's a lot more John le Carré. This is about the Cold War and actual spying. And it is about, well, it's quite, it, it's more of a complicated one. It might actually be easier just to go through it because it's it's not one that's easy to summarise, I think. But it's about double agents or potentially triple agents and all sorts of undercover shenanigans, really. It opens at an airport like so many of these 60s spy shows. Except this is an airport in Germany. One of the first people we see is Harry Fielder dressed as a German soldier or German guard. And for anyone who doesn't know, Harry Fielder was... He was an actor but was largely an extra. And when you know what he looks yes. like, he crops up he in was, many, many things. Uh, he was uh, Mike Pratt's double. Oh, really? Um, okay. He was. And he I think he was also Stuart Damon's in the champions right um, he was definitely on uh, a champions email group back in the day uh, that i was also on yes i was facebook friends with him for a while he died like two weeks ago or something like that at the time of recording oh what a shame yeah so he's of all the extras of that era he's probably like one of the two best known i think yeah even more exciting than harry fielder we do indeed have the one and only jacqueline pierce baby jacqueline pierce and her amazing hair and her amazing eye makeup her false eyelashes are so heavy it's almost like she's got two pairs and we see her arriving at an airport and meeting an extremely grumpy german immigration officer and i was a bit puzzled i was thinking why are the germans in this so rude and unpleasant and officious because this is the 1960s and this is and it's because i had totally forgotten about east germany yes of course i had totally forgotten about the existence of east germany and how that was a bit of a an oppressive totalitarian communist state so of course they would be grumpy and officious and unpleasant there because of course we're used to these days germany being lovely and friendly and 
Of course we are. Full of Sebastian Vettel and... You speak in Deutsch? No, but I do have a phrase book. With a name like Klinger? My grandfather was German. And you are English. But you have no visa. But I was told in London that... Augenblick mal. Servalan, <clears throat> Jackie has found herself in East Germany. She's a British intelligence officer or agent. Yes. And she has gone there ostensibly to take photographs. And they give her a stern warning when she turns up, well, you can come in and take photographs. You've got a visa to be here a week. But if you take photographs of any military or police or any other sensitive installations, you'll be in awful big trouble, Missy. So don't do it. So naturally, the first thing she does... Is locate the nearest military installation and whip a camera out. So immediately some plainclothes people descend on her and go, Oh, yes, sunshine, you're nicked. Oh, my goodness, Jack Regan's working in East <laughs> Berlin. <laughs> and so she is taken before a colonel, in uh, presumably in the Stasi or some such, and he goes, You know, this is very silly and you're in serious trouble now, and I know that you are really a British agent and not a photographer at all. And she says, Aha. Everything has worked perfectly. I've come to offer my services to the German Democratic Republic. I want to work for you. Because I like East Germany more than Britain and they've been mean to me and they punch me in the arm when no one's looking, so I've come to work with you instead. That's the exact dialogue. So she's sent to a special training school which seems to involve ladies frolicking and playing volleyball and I'm not making that up. No, you're, you're not making it up. <laughs> There's lots of frolicking and giggling. I have... My my note says, Servalan is reading a book wearing a stunning dress, her eye makeup is perfection, but lots of other ladies are playing volleyball around her. Yeah, everyone's dressed in white gym, um, PE kit, apart from her. She's all dressed nicely. And then the volleyball comes in her direction, and she catches it, and she giggles in a delighted fashion and throws it back. Yes, she does. Which is, um, yeah, that's a very strange scene. This is supposedly some kind of double agent training camp or something. I don't really know what this place is. There's a big, like, sinister speaker on it that calls her to go and see the captain the uh, colonel rather the stasi colonel it's the governor maybe they're practicing being sexy maybe maybe they are but obviously obviously she doesn't need to practice because boom oh boom indeed but like all the girlish giggling that's them practicing to seduce james bond yes they're practicing coyness and speaking of james bond we have a very strong James Bond connection here uh, because this episode was directed by John Glenn who when he wasn't orbiting the moon he was later the director of For Your Eyes Only, A View to a Kill, The Living Daylights and that most generic of all James Bond titles Licence to Kill. She's called to see the Colonel. And it's Philip Maddock. It's Philip Maddock, of course. Yes, I was thinking, it's not the Colonel, is it? It's the it's the Commandant. Yes, and, and he says to her, your name will also go on the list. What is it? Don't tell him, Pike. Pike. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It, only probably his most famous role, which is which is a shame because he's he's done so so many other things. And he's such a good actor as well. Like when he's he turns up, you know he's always going to be good. Uh, he underplays really well, and particularly in some of those Doctor Who's, the, the notable one is the War Games, where there is lots of projecting and lots of characters talking like this and being very theatrical. And then Philip Maddock comes on and really underplays it and is very sinister, and you really listen to him because he's talking very quietly. And so yeah, he's like, wow, this guy's good. I have the situation under control, Warlord. It is only a matter of time before they are recaptured. 
Then I hope that time is on your side. With all of this, all of this lovely uh, Jacqueline Pierce stuff that's happening, she's given her orders and her assignment, and her assignment is McGill. Yeah, she's to monkey about with him. Yes, yeah, so he's been sent by a photographer friend who is from Germany. He's been sent to East Berlin to track down this photographer's brother, who was a musician, and he's going on the pretext of finding some rare camera equipment for his German photographer friend. And now we find out that he does dangerous work for money, but he apparently does it very, very reluctantly. He's not very keen on doing it at all. He's not very keen on doing this particular job. In fact, he actually says outright do me a favor turn me down there are quite a few episodes where he is reluctant to to do things and i think it's less to do with the fact that he doesn't really want to do the assignment and more to do with the fact that the people employing him are for the most part pretty vile and he just doesn't like them there's 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 a there's a lot of that there's a lot of of that he he makes a, a bad mercenary he's too moral i love the fact that he's just always asking people for money (laughs) <laughs> yeah like yes he he demands 20,000 from Donald Sutherland in the previous episode and he's always just demanding huge amounts of cash from people which is quite refreshing as well because often there is a certain nobility about our heroes that it's all about doing the right thing and it's nice to be paid but the main thing is doing the right thing but he will just he doesn't this guy doesn't have an agent he's just asking them for money up front all right I'll do it 25,000 it goes with the whole making it real theme of the show uh that you know it's all very well and good being noble but also you've got to eat even if it isn't hagen in your <laughs> so there is some hardcore spying going on in this episode some proper actual real spying and none of your james bond nonsense uh, what I really like about this is that you're never quite sure of Jackie's motives. Or should call her Ruth, that's the character's name. You're never quite sure of Ruth's motives. Is she really working for the Stasi? Is she a triple agent? So she has to find out why McGill is in East Germany, whether he's there for... Um, whether he's genuinely shopping for camera equipment, like he says, or whether he's there as a spy. And she has to find this out for uh, the Colonel and also for Philip Maddock. I think we are sort of led to believe by sort of innuendo and an intimation that they did have a bit of a thing while they were working together in Greece one time. And that even though they haven't seen each other for many years they whatever happened they left it very very amicable and they both have quite a soft spot for each other as we see later on rather (laughs) Jacqueline Pierce has real star quality I think because we're all used to say I'm used to seeing her as Servalani you slightly take her for granted because it's such a signature role it's like oh yes it's Servalani there we go but in the 60s context in particular when there were a lot of actresses doing similar sorts of acting she stands out as being very different and quite a she's quite a unique presence so you can see why she was cast as Servalan and why she was part of that very charismatic central cast of Blake Seven because she really does leap off the screen in this and suppose it happens to be true do you believe it it's early days McGill didn't spend 10 years with American intelligence for nothing and you are not speaking to an amateur then it stands to reason, doesn't it, that this operation is going to take time and... McGill is booked into the Dresdener Hotel for three days. 
When are you seeing him again? Tonight. It struck me as a little out of character. Oh? He's got tickets for the Dresden Symphony Orchestra. She she really does. I mean, incredible wardrobe and makeup, notwithstanding, which I just have total envy of the whole way through. The strange part about her general wardrobe and makeup is when he goes when they have a date together and he turns up and she has got some extra hair on top of her head suddenly she's got extra hair <laughs> that's rather strange it's like yeah here's my, here's my extra hair <laughs> it wasn't there before it's there now i grew it i grew it just for you it's not a wig honest <laughs> it grows like crest my hair <laughs> There's a bit I really liked. Cause there's, there's actually a bit of gadgetry in this. that we, we do dip into slight James Bond territory. So at one point there's a car chase and his car starts billowing smoke in order to lose and confuse his pursuers. Uh, a bit I particularly like, though, is the record player where one of the higher-up spies receives a single on vinyl yes. and he puts it on a record player that he keeps in his filing cabinet, which is a slightly surreal thing anyway. Uh, and it plays music, but he switches on a thing which says filter and it filters out the music. And there is actually a voice from one of the agents on the record delivering information. So that's quite nifty. Uh, and it, the record player handily lights up with a sign that says filter when the filter switched on. But the bit that made me laugh. So the voice on the record uh, is this very sinister and business like sounding voice who delivers the uh, vital information about the movements and whereabouts of McGill. This is Traveller. Booth Klinger has made contact with McGill. He's cautious, but he's making inquiries about Liebkin and should locate him within a few days. I'll let you know when McGill and Liebkin are arrested by the East German authorities. Let me have a cover story to use in the sad event that McGill is killed. And it ends... <laughs> it ends with the message... And by the way, I'm short of cash. End of message. <laughs> I immediately thought of the, the poet Ewan McTeagle. <laughs> Yes. Can you lend me a fiver <laughs> till the end of the week? I'm expecting a check. <laughs> I'm expecting a gyro. <laughs> yes. Very much that. I haven't even thought of it, but yes, that's exactly that's the exact toe. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> can you can you read us the Pope? I don't like to. It's it's personal. <laughs> <laughs> can you lend us half a crown till Tuesday? <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> Why have you done this to me? I'm sorry. I, I've I've wrecked you for the episode. <laughs> You've broken me. Do you know if it's filmed in East Germany? Because there's some great ruins in there. Listen, it's very cinematic. It looks beautiful. Like all of the other ITC shows filmed in and around Pinewood. There are amazing stretches of wasteland with these ruined buildings in which look great. Yeah, they they really do. And they're very, very evocative. And uh, there's a scene later on where the guy that McGill is looking for, uh, he finds him and then the fella Liebkind runs away from him and nearly gets squished by a falling pillar. Yeah, that's quite a Buster Keaton sort of move. It's a good stunt. Yes, it really is. Oh, a thing that does bother me a little about, you know, despite the whole keeping it real aspect of the show, we, we do see this in this episode, certainly, but 
it's a kind of running thing through the series. McGill appears to be the only secret agent on Earth who doesn't know any language other than English. (laughs) I hadn't noticed that, but that's a good point. He's very bad at German. Very bad at German. He tries to get information at the, the Dresden Symphony Orchestra, tries to get information from the fella at the box office and speaks very, very bad German to him. The fella answers in German and McGill's just like, no idea what he's saying. (laughs) Which is really weird because normally spies are meant to be fluent in at least six languages. That's sort of like, you know, the the minimum requirement for a spy. It's a very tight script. Generally, it's full of incident. A lot of 60s shows use fistfights in the way that musicals use songs. We'll just stop the story for a while just for a fist fight. But this is, yeah, this is very tight and it doesn't tread water very much. So then stuff happens and they end up going to find this Liebkin chap. Basically, McGill does decide to, to run away when Ruth tells him to. Then he gets happened upon by another member of American intelligence and he is like, well, if you don't help Ruth, then she's probably going to die. Uh, so he he helps out because he's a nice man. And also he demands money. $25,000, payable on demand in West Germany. And then McGill runs into a garage, and this, this was such a lovely, lovely moment. He runs into a nearby garage and finds a car, and in the car, on the steering wheel, there is a map, and some very, very kind soul has put his suitcase in the car, in the passenger seat, and McGill is so, so happy <laughs> to see his suitcase. He literally, the beam across his face, it's beautiful. <laughs> and he gives it a little one of those punches, you know, like, oh, buddy, I'm so happy to see you. Fine, he he had a smooch with Jacqueline Pierce. That was great. He's been on a date in a beer keller. That was fine. He's on the run from several different intelligence agencies whatever he's got his suitcase (laughs) everything is good in the world so all that mcgill is left with is his suitcase and a ticket home and the money and some lovely memories of a wonderful holiday and that weird extra bit of hair (laughs) that ruth brought on the date yeah (laughs) That will probably keep him wondering for years. <laughs> Where did it even come from? Does she give it like a saucer of milk every night? <laughs> well, or... he's such a bloke, he probably didn't even notice it. He, he didn't realise she had more hair suddenly. Do you notice anything different about me? No. Nope. Not really. <laughs> so I, I have one more note really on this show. And that is that it really needs to swap theme tunes with the Persuaders. Yeah, I think so. Because this has a very jolly theme tune for what's not a particularly jolly show. And the Persuaders is the exact reverse. I agree. I think that would work a lot better. But, you know, what do we know? We weren't even born. We weren't in charge. We weren't. Now we have seen both of the episodes. Yes, yes, yes. I am going to ask the questions. What was your favourite episode out of the two? Well, I think I liked the first episode that we watched, the uh, day of execution, because of that Michael Ellis trippiness that it had, of that sort of ubic 
that mysterious name Mariocchi just appearing in unusual places and being heard everywhere he goes. So that was very intriguing. But they were both good. They were both very solid, tight episodes. Yeah, I think I I would agree. I think Day of Execution was my favourite out of the two as well. Who was your favourite or least favourite character? I think my favourite character, I would say, was Ruth, largely on the strength of the actor and performance involved it's nice to see her playing a different sort of character as well and showing a bit more range a little bit softer really even though she had quite a badass job being a double agent but she it was it was a, a, a much softer role in it and a, a more romantic it was nice yes to, to the extent that when actually she was having the smooch with mcgill i was expecting her to zap him in the back of the head with something because this is what servlan always does to federation officers how about your least favorite, least favorite character i mean there were there weren't hugely standout characters in it. I think I I didn't quite connect to McGill as the lead. I think you've more of a penchant for the grumpy fellow. I have. Whereas I like a bit I like a bit more quirk, I think. He's more human than number six. He's he's maybe a notch above number six. He's not quite that level of yeah. inscrutability. But he's not John Steed. So I don't know if I'd say he's my least favourite, but in terms of his importance within the show, I didn't really connect to him in the way that possibly I should have done. Yeah, you kind of need to do that, I guess, with the... I get that. How about favourite and least favourite scenes or elements of production, etc.? I think I would say the thing that I liked most about it was that it was a bit different and it wasn't a swinging 60s show with bongos. It was more like a Jean le Carré series and there was that element of danger and grittiness to it and it's nice to see that from a 60s show. So that's quite refreshing because I think, although it's always nice to see these jaunty, fun shows, there probably didn't need to be another one. Yes. I don't know if I really had a least favourite element though. Oh, that's, that's nice. There was nothing glaring in it that stood out as being like, ooh, that didn't work. It's, it's. I think it's very solidly done. That's a really nice thing to say. So that leads me to the final question. Uh, would you ever watch it again? I would watch it again. I don't know if I would, because I tend to watch things that are a bit more fun. So it wouldn't necessarily be my first choice, but I also wouldn't turn my nose up at it, if that makes sense. So I, no. I wouldn't go, oh, Man in Suitcases on. I'm not watching that garbage. I would sit down and watch it, but... <laughs> I, I perhaps would I would tend to think that's a bit a bit more eccentric and a bit more colourful first probably. maybe we maybe we could save it for when you're next to stay. Yeah. So thank you very much for sitting through well, thank you. two whole episodes of Man in a Suitcase. I really appreciate that. Seven hours of recording this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> seventeen days it's taken to record this episode. So I hope you all enjoy it your best flipping had. <laughs> and if you don't, please don't tell us. We know where you live. Because the amount of nervous breakdowns we have <laughs> tried to avoid today. Honest to God, it is now half past eight at night and we started trying to record at four o'clock. So, <laughs> we did. Uh, never speak of it again. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm exhausted now. I think I'm going to need therapy. Yes, yeah, so thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you would like to get in touch with us at any point, you are more than welcome to our twitter account is at retro underscore tube or if you would rather email us you can do that our email address is retrotubepodcast at gmail.com you could try carrier pigeon or telepathic messages or a message in a bottle but we both live a bit too far (laughs) inland for that we'd always like to hear from you and we are 
pretty good at getting back to you as well. So, uh, yeah, give it, give it a whirl. Even if we say so ourselves. Next week we will be back. Uh, and next week it is Adam's choice. And could you give us a little hint as to what your next choice is going to be? No. <laughs> no. I'm... Actually, that is a brilliant clue. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep it mysterious. Have you got the final word, Mr. Leslie? No, I didn't think of one this week. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. <laughs> <That's so laughs> wow. Great. <laughs> <laughs> the end.